0: This
1: is Andrew Bergman, and you're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast.
2: Godfrey's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and our engineer Frank Ferdorosa. Our guest this week is an old friend who's returning to the podcast once again to educate, entertain us, and enlighten us about everything. From Hal Roach's collaborations with Mussolini to Fred Allen's dislike of Eddie Cantor, to Ted Healy's outright hatred of Georgie Jessel, and much, much more. He's a former comedian, a historian, a producer, and TV host, an occasional podcaster, and the author of a best-selling book that we consider the Bible here at the show, the Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy, which received rave reviews and was selected as the Book of the Year by the National Post and L.A. Times. He was a consulting producer on CNN's History of Comedy, whenever that show was on the air. (laughs) It was was on about 600 times Yeah, 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 600 Well, but it would be on once And 10 months later it would be on again (laughs) That's right, that's right And then it would come back on another channel At a totally (laughs) different time It was hard to keep up with Uh, The Spike jones produced Funny How And the host of his very own podcast Classic Showbiz with Cliff Nasal Nose
1: <laughs> He's gonna do that again Cliff
2: Can't wait What was that Cliff Nasal Nose Nasal
1: Nose <laughs> Oh Drew will be so happy
2: <laughs> he's, he's interviewed Everyone from Mel Brooks to Steve Martin as well as our Former podcast guest George Slaughter Buck Henry, Bernie Capel Ronnie Schell, and Dick Cavett, just to name a few. Welcome back to the podcast, the man that Vice Magazine once called the Human Encyclopedia of Comedy, and a man who claims that former Wizard of Oz munchkin, Jerry Marin, was once hired to pee on the legendary Jimmy Stewart. Please welcome to the show the incomparable Colin Noselnoff.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You don't know what an honor that is, Cliff. (laughs) I do know what an honor that is. Thank you so much. To have your name mangled. Cliff, the great Cliff Nesteroff is here, is back with us. How the hell are you and where are you? Tell our listeners.
3: I am in uh, Nelson, British Columbia, tagging up, as it were, because I'm not American. I have to renew all my immigration papers. So I have to be outside of the country for a few months till that's done. And in the meantime, I'm in my hometown of Nelson, British Columbia, famous for being the shooting location for the Steve Martin movie, Roxanne. So Ah. when I was five years old, the first introduction to show business I ever had was watching Steve Martin walk around my hometown with a prosthetic nose. I watched on the sidelines that entire movie being made.
1: I love that. As a child. I, yeah. just, I just saw Steve Martin perform last night. He played the banjo. He played a sad banjo at uh, Ricky Jay's memorial service here wow. in New York. Yeah, it was very, very, very touching. Um, before we jump into anything else, I think Gilbert wants to know the Jerry Maron peeing on Jimmy uh, Stewart yeah. story. So,
2: so Jimmy Stewart at one point said, oh, could, could, you, could you get a famous uh, major to pee on me <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think it was for uh, Jimmy Stewart's birthday party and some of his friends hired, I believe, Jerry Maron and Billy Curtis, the two little people of that era who were very... <laughs> Uh, prominent. I think this was in the 1950s. And they And Billy Barty of- was on location somewhere? It may have been Billy Barty. I'm going off the top of my okay. head. I can't remember if it was Billy Curtis or Billy Barty. But regardless, Jerry Marin and another one of those fellas uh, were hired to jump out of a birthday cake like a dancing girl, but in a diaper and then drop the diaper and start urinating <laughs> on Jimmy Stewart at his birthday party. <laughs>
2: Now, did Jimmy Stewart request this? Was he
3: into getting peed on? Uh, I don't know if he was into it, but it was a surprise uh, birthday present for him. And I, that's according to Jerry Maron's autobiography.
1: So straight from the source. <laughs> you got that, Gil? That's your, that's your opening show gift. Yeah. He was that's... in a diaper and paid to pee on Jimmy Stewart. Ah,
2: so, But we don't know if Jimmy Stewart wanted it or not. I, he may
3: have developed a taste for it later on <laughs> after that. I don't
2: know. I was on the phone with
1: Cliff last night, and I told him about... Uh, he did not know about, surprisingly, because I thought he knew er- absolutely everything. Once in a while, we stump him about uh, the Valanche story about Joan Crawford peeing on David Niven, which he was unfamiliar with. Oh, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'd never heard that before.
2: Yeah. Add, add that to the collection. Um. Now, n- oh, yeah. Go ahead, Gil. No, no, no. I... I- <laughs> I'm just stuck on Jimmy Stewart getting <laughs> peed on by famous midgets. This is
3: well, do you guys a- have a Do you guys have a list of all the people that who are into that? I mean, no, not Dan handy. Thomas. <laughs> not not uh, our. Uh, we moved offices,
2: so files. <laughs> it's in the It's in the old file. <laughs>
1: Uh, <laughs> uh, oh my god. Tell us what you've been up to since we last saw you. You took oh, you tried god. your hand think- at a podcast that Mark Marin produced. Oh, you, yeah, you've been yeah. All, you, I, I you don't were, know how you
3: guys crank out these podcasts uh, two a week. I could never do it. I did four four episodes of my podcast over the course of 2 years and that's been it, but it's available there on the same uh, Stitcher uh, yeah, uh app, the Stitcher but platform. It was called Classic Showbiz and uh, it was a lot of work, man. It was like top-heavy production values scripted, just stories from the history of comedy and the history of show business, one about the mafia, one about um, a gay comedian in the 30s who was opening, openly gay, a guy named Ray Bourbon, um, and an episode about comedians and LSD, about George Carlin and Richard Pryor, how they did psychedelics in the 60s, and that changed things. But one thing about that show that might be of interest to your listeners is that i use the actual audio from the interviews i did in research for the comedian so when i'm talking about comedians in the mafia i throw it to jack carter and then jack carter tells a story on the podcast so if you want to hear the voices of some of these people yes uh, absolutely classic showbiz yeah
2: now now that brings us to a story that i think everyone wants to hear again and that's that marlon
3: brando fucked richard Pryor in the ass <laughs> do you know anything about this cliff Well, I just found out about it at the same time everybody found about it. You know, it's a (laughs) shot heard around the world. We all heard it at the same time. Um, I know Rain Pryor was really mad about that story. Yes, she was. uh, uh, You know, Marlon Brando, definitely uh, uh, bisexual by most accounts. But, I, I, you know, the Pryor story was was new to me. Um, That may have been why Richard Pryor was so enraged. Do you know the story about what happened at the Hollywood Bowl in the late 70s with Richard Pryor? He was no, booked on refre- a show that was I, wait,
1: like. Refreshes.
3: It was like a uh, gay rights activist type of uh, event in the late 70s. And they booked all these sort of uh, allies of the gay and lesbian community, like Tab Hunter and Lily Tomlin. And they booked Richard Pryor. And Richard Pryor went on this crazy rant for like 10 minutes, yelling the word fag and going off. And it was front page news the next day. Um, but maybe he had just had that encounter with Marlon Brando and kind of felt like ashamed <laughs> about it. I don't know. But it was a big, big story where there was like a campaign against Richard Pryor yes, there. I think it's 76 or 77. Me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at some point in the show, and by the way, Chris, uh, Cliff has brought us a fresh list of scandals, Gilbert. You're going to be very happy. Oh,
3: excellent. <laughs> he,
1: he was like, gold, it was like Christmas morning. Oh. He emailed me a list.
2: <laughs> I can't
1: wait. Well, yeah,
3: that's what I've mostly been up to since the last time I saw you guys is sort of researching that kind of stuff. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and one of the things that I discovered, maybe you had heard about this before. Um, do you know about the incident between Stu Gilliam, the axe? And uh, Alan Hale Jr., you know that story? We'd
1: heard this story. Well, yeah, no. I, I, I think Gino know, knows this story because he knew Alan Hale Jr. Yeah, but, but, it's, but it's, who's
3: who's
2: the axe?
1: The, huh? Who, the axe? Stu the, Gilliam, the, the black comic. Yeah, it, it, an axe. It, it, you mean a physical it, axe?
2: Oh, an axe! It, it, oh, it, oh it, I, I, I thought that was some wrestler or something. The axe! <laughs> oh my God! So Stu Gilliam. And Alan Hale Jr., uh, best known as Skipper, on
1: Gilligan's yes. yeah, Island. For the, for the uninitiated, tell the story.
3: Well, Alan Hale Jr., like a lot of celebrities in the late 60s and early 70s, he opened his own restaurant. It was on La Cienega Boulevard in uh, Beverly Hills. I remember. Beverly Hills in Hollywood. Right. And so it was like a family restaurant with a drawing of him on the sign. And you get matches that had a picture of Alan Hale Jr. on it, you know. And at the time, Stu Gilliam, who had... Uh, started his career as one of the few, uh, maybe maybe one of the many, uh, black ventriloquists on the Chitlin circuit, along with Willie Tyler and Lester, uh-huh. along with a guy named Richard and Willie, and along with a guy named Aaron Williams, who appeared on an episode of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. Stu Gilliam was the fourth of the African-American ventriloquists in that era before he went into straight stand-up, and you know, he appeared on many game shows and did voices of cartoons, late 60s, early 70s. His career was on on the way up. He had done the Hollywood Palace as a stand-up. Larry Gelbart hired him to star in a new series that was sort of the unofficial, all-black version of MASH. Oh, Rollout. It was called... Yeah, it was called Rollout. Yes, It starred <laughs> Stu Gilliam. <laughs> At that time, there were all these sort of um, black versions of white shows. It was sort of a trend. There was a black version of The Odd Couple that was live on the stage. There was oh, all black yeah. version of Barefoot in the Park.
2: And and then there was the, uh, yeah, there was uh, They
3: did a TV version of De The Odd Mon Couple.
2: Wilson and Ron Silver. Ron Glass. Ron Glass, From I Barney mean. Miller. Ron, yeah, yeah,
3: Miller. Yeah. yeah. Right, so this was part of that trend. Rollout took place during World War II instead of the Korean War, but it was basically an all black uh, version of MASH, also created by Larry Gelbart, featured people like Garrett Morris in the cast before Saturday Night Live. So Stu Gilliam, starred in this show. He was on the front page of a lot of like Parade Magazine and regional TV guides. It was a big deal and got got decent ratings, ran about four episodes and then Stu Gilliam went out for dinner at Alan Hale's Lobster Barrel oh, and when geez. he showed up... <laughs> I love this already. <laughs> when he showed up, the maitre d' said, I'm sorry, sir, there's no uh, seats available and Stu Gilliam said something to the effect of, don't you know who I am? I'm the star of... Uh, the hit sitcom Rollout, you know. <laughs> 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 and the Maitre D said, so, I'm sorry, sir, we can't seat you. There's no seats here at Alan Hale's Lobster Barrel. <laughs>
1: so, Alan Hale's Lobster Barrel was doing well.
3: <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Stu Gilliam went back to his car, got a axe oh. out of the trunk of the car, and came back and attacked the Maitre D with an axe. <laughs> It became this huge tabloid uh, story. It was in all the press. It was in Jet magazine. And just like today, when something goes crazy on Twitter and everybody's like calling for the person to be fired, same thing. They ended up um, deciding that Stu Gilliam was too much of a liability, so they canceled rollout because of this incident. Unbelievable. The show and then canceled the show. Did you know this story, Gilbert? No. It's great. It's gold. That's
2: (laughs) great. It's gold. And did, yeah. did did Alan Hale Jr. ever have any say in the matter? Did he press
3: charges? I don't know. That there's no follow-up in the, in the news reports that I've read about that. I'm assuming they didn't press charges, otherwise it would have been in the news. But Alan Hale Jr., they didn't mention it, but he may have been there because supposedly he would hang out at his own restaurant all the time and answer the phone, uh, hello, little buddy. That was how he would answer the phone. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: I, I have I have friends from Los Angeles, when they were kids, they would always crank call Alan Hale's Lobster Barrel because they wanted to hear him. They wanted to talk to Alan Hale. They always answered the phone. So. grand.
2: Yeah. I love
1: that. We, we'll, we'll get into the stories. There are so many of them, but I want you to just, I don't know that people know this about you, too, that you started as a comic, and I was asking yeah. you what your act was like, and I was intrigued.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well I had a couple of acts. I did an act as myself in my own voice like a normal comedian and that act was always unpopular, never went well. <laughs> okay. And then I had another act that I did in character that destroyed. It actually was very popular in uh, in Vancouver where I was doing it and the character's name was Shecky Gray. Uh, At the time, I was 20 years old. He was an old-fashioned, old-timey, unfunny, narcissistic comedian. And ironically, at the time, I had no context for people like Shecky Green or Jack Carter, yet I channeled them. I emulated them on stage as these sort of indignant characters. And I wrote uh, street jokes, basically, that were original street jokes but that could have sounded like they were from the 1950s. So I'd go up on stage in character. And actually, you know, whenever I talk about Jack Carter on your show, I do that voice. Yeah, It doesn't really sound like Jack Carter, it's okay. but it's really loud and he's, fuck you, you're not, you know, just screaming and ranting. <laughs> that was basically <laughs> the same voice I was doing in my stand-up act all those years before, is Shecky Gray. And I would go up on stage and do jokes like, uh, uh, well, I'd say, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Shecky Gray. I'm an internationally renowned and professional, professional comedian. I recently threw a party for all my impotent friends. But nobody came. Oh, <laughs> now we're cooking with gasoline. <laughs> and I had this old battered cymbal, and I would smash this cymbal. after every jo- Yeah, and after every joke, I would yell, Now we're working! Now we're... You know, every time after every joke, I would say, Now we're doing something. And I stole some jokes from this guy named Alan Gale, who was a Miami Beach... Stand-up comic from the early fifties. He put out a comedy record pressed by the mafia on roulette records roulette. called on- oh, Morris, Morris Levy. Ah, and, and the name of the record was, uh, live at Jack Silverman's international celebrity club. And I was listening to that record around that same time and was just, that's when I kind of became fascinated by this world, this Miami beach yeah. mobster comedy world. And, I took a joke off of that record and did it in character on stage as Shecky Gray. And the joke was, uh, I was walking down the street the other day, saw a lady, said, hey, miss, your pants are coming down. She looked, said, no, they're not. I said, sorry, I've made up my mind. Oh, now we're working.
2: <laughs> Gilbert's taking so notes, the, by the uh, way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm opening him with that tonight.
3: Yeah. So then after all of these sort of street jokes, I would yell, now we're doing this, and they would get increasingly absurd, and that actually became the crux of the act. So I'd do a joke, now we're working, do a joke, now we're cooking with gasoline, do a joke, and then, now we're poking holes in the Pope's condoms, (laughs) now we're blowing Bob Dylan in the wind, now we're wishing that Keanu was the Reeves in a wheelchair, because at the time Christopher Reeves was Oh. My. <laughs> it's like a Mar- so it's that like a was, dark martin short character. Yeah, it was yeah. very broad and very sticky and sometimes very broad and very sticky acts become very popular and it did it really became a phenomenon there but it also it kind of left me with this weird feeling cuz it wasn't really the kind of stand up I wanted to do. You know, right. I like stand ups the talk right. rather than than affect crazy characters but it became very popular. And I learned, and I don't know if you ever had this experience in your career, Gilbert, but I learned that because my act was very loud and sort of combative, it kind of gave license to the audience to be loud and combative in return. So people oh, would scream yeah. at me That's happened while to you, I was Bill? screaming yeah. at them. Yeah. So eventually that became the act. I would... Um, respond to hecklers in character and became sort of this insult comic the same way our friend Jeff does speed roasting people. And this was not arranged. People would line up at the front of the stage single file to take turns yelling at me. And then I would yell back <laughs> uh-huh. at them with an insult and it would get a big la- would get a big laugh. So I did that. Shecky Gray for um, several years in Vancouver until uh, my throat couldn't take it anymore.
1: It's interesting too. Then you're you're a kid. I mean, you're in your twenties at this point. I'm assuming that you're doing this, and already yeah, was, your your love your, your of these of these kind of old school comics, these broken down loser comics, is already informing what you do on stage.
3: Yeah, because yeah, I was collecting records at the time, so I'd go to the record store and find all these records by Rusty Warren, Woody Woodbury, Bell Barth. What like? I mentioned that guy Alan Gale, and all of them uh, tended to do the same jokes. And they all tended to be recorded in some weird nightclub you'd never heard of. And I just became fascinated by that. You know, Woody Woodbury was on a record label called Stereo Oddities. And the first time I ever did any show business, it was community radio when I was 16 years old. And the name of my show was Stereo Oddities. And I would play weird records, sort of like Dr. Demento and stuff like that. So the vinyl... Uh, world was sort of the big influence because those people didn't do TV. You didn't see Woody Woodbury on TV much. He had a talk show, but you really didn't see him growing up. No, Rusty Warren you never saw on TV. Bell Barth that you never saw on TV. Well, they had dirty acts, didn't they? Rusty Warren and Bell Barth? Well, yeah, borderline dirty. But for that reason, I would find these records and go, well, who the fuck are they? Like, Why are these records in every thrift store yet I've never heard of them or seen them on TV? So that was the sort of inherent historian was uh, born there.
1: Gil, did you know these comics? These, I mean, you you, you listen ah, to comedy Woody, albums.
2: Woody Woodbury I was familiar with. Yeah,
1: still with Definitely. us, Woody. I think he just had a birthday this he week. He did? He's in his 90s. Yeah, I think he turned 92 yeah. or 93 was, or something. He was
2: in some weird movie with Ellen Burstyn. Wow. It's like where he was appeared as Woody Woodbury. But were
1: you a student of these? Uh, uh, you you collected comedy albums. You listened to comedy albums. I, I know you listen to Alan Sherman and yeah, and all yeah. of that stuff. But did you know these these kind of no, B and C no. level? The other ones comics? I didn't know. Rusty Warren, Bell Barth was famous.
2: Tell tell us Bell. another tell us another frightening showbiz story.
1: <laughs> Let
3: me pick. Sure. One. Wait, Let me pick on one off list the list, there, Frank. What's yeah, that? Pick one off the list. I'll pick Go one. Ahead and pick one off, I'll the pick
1: list. one off the list. Uh, I kind of like. Uh, I kind of like the Tennessee Ernie Ford story.
2: Okay.
3: Oh yeah, T- <laughs> Tennessee Tennessee Ernie Ford uh, <laughs> sent and had delivered a cease and de- desist letter to the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> because-
1: He loves this stuff. This is catnip for him.
3: The the Ku Klux Klan was using Tennessee Ernie Ford's recording of the old rugged cross during their cross burnings. (laughs) And God.
2: (laughs) You like that, Jill? (laughs) So, did the Klan go to court?
3: (laughs) I guess they respected Tennessee Ernie Ford. (laughs) Because they did cease and desist uh, using that during cross burnings, reportedly. But yeah. So that's all there is to the story, but still.
1: He loves this stuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah, <laughs> pick another one. Here's another one that's less funny, uh, I'm sure, but <laughs> it, it, it pertains to somebody we talk about a lot on this show, which is Timmy
3: Rogers. Oh, the great oh. oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Timmy Rogers is. Uh, it's kind of fascinating because people have not explored his career at all. They know, oh, yeah, if they remember him at all. We
1: just talked to Larry uh, Charles goes, about him. Larry Charles knew who he was.
3: I, I heard that. I heard that. Students uh, of comedy Tim know Rogers him. Name dropper. Yeah. yeah. Well, he started in the jazz world. In 1943, he was a member of the Count Basie Orchestra, and he was sort of the comedian with the orchestra. But his knack for writing comedy material came from lyrics. He was a lyricist. He would write sort of funny novelty songs for jazz musicians, and then in 1946, post-war, he kind of went straight and started just doing stand up. He would still close with a song, the way like Jack Carter and those guys would usually close yeah, with a song. He used in the to do period.
2: everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die.
3: That's right. <laughs> and he had another he had another uh song about inflation, about the high prices these days. <laughs> which he, he did which he did for like 40 years. And bless, always, bless he his heart. <laughs> But in 1946, he was sort of the first of the modern black comedians to just go on stage as himself in a tuxedo, as opposed to Pigmeat Markham doing a character with a floppy hat and props or Moms Mabley doing a character. And he and Pigmeat Markham had a big feud. (laughs) Timmy Rogers and Pigmeat Markham did not get along. And the reason was because Pigmeat Markham was old fashioned. And despite the fact that he was black, uh, Pigmeat Markham would use blackface. He would blacken himself up further and do the white around the mouth. And Timmy Rogers would say, man, we're past that. You don't need to do that anymore. And so they would bicker back and forth. And then Timmy Rogers recorded a number of um, rhythm and blues records and things like this throughout the 50s. And then in 1958, this is the story. He was booked in London at the Palladium on a show with Liberace and Dick Shawn. And Liberace was the headliner. Timmy Rogers was doing like a half an hour And Dick Shawn was brand new. He was doing like 10 minutes. But Dick Shawn was upstaging everybody. He was so dominant Mm -hmm. and so good and getting such an ovation. They started whittling down Timmy Rogers' time and bolstering Dick Shawn's time. And so Timmy Rogers got pissed off. He quit while he was in London. And his agent, since he was over there anyways, booked him on a series of tours on military bases. He started performing on American military installations all throughout Europe. He was in Germany in 1958 doing the third show in one night on a Saturday night, and he showed up for a 12.15 a.m. show at 12.03 a.m., and the sergeant there was drunk, he was white, and he was outraged. He thought Timmy Rogers was late, and he said, where the fuck you been? Where's the fucking MC?" And Timmy Rogers said, whoa, whoa, man, what's the problem? And the guy said, this white sergeant said, don't call me man, boy. And punched him in the face, knocked him up against a shuffleboard table, punched him again, threw him to the ground while yelling the N-word, kicked him in the ribs, broke three of his ribs, and fractured his face. And Timmy Rogers at that point was also dancing in his act, and he was unable to dance after that. And so there was a court-martial. They put this sergeant on trial. Um, People expected him to get five years for this unprovoked racist assault on Timmy Rogers. And they had this court-martial, and he was acquitted of all charges, despite the fact there were all these witnesses. Unreal. And Timmy Rogers was outraged. He said, this is Mississippi justice. This is Senator Bilbo-style justice in the American military. And the reason I bring it up is because a few weeks ago there was that horrible story about the actor from Empire, and it reminded me yeah. of uh, Timmy Rogers being yeah. attacked by this sort of white supremacist and then— um, it almost ruined his career in the sense that he couldn't move for several months. He was Horrible. just um stuck in a hospital bed.
2: But yes. Boy, that started off great and then great. <laughs> <laughs> I, you, I
1: said it wasn't exactly funny <laughs> but, but it pertains it pertains to somebody we maybe maybe this one's a little funnier. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, that got real dark real
1: fast. This, but this is from your book, and I'm gonna just repeatedly plug the book through the show. The wonderful book, The Comedians. If our listeners do not have this book Please do not waste a moment. Go out and get it, because this is the, the perfect book for people who listen to this show. But what
2: about Ted Healy trying to kill Jessel? <laughs> as long as we're on a violence theme. Now, now for anyone out there, Ted Healy, it used to be Ted Healy and his three stooges. Right. And before yeah. they
3: split up. Well, I think um, the story was in a Walter Winchell column, or yeah, I think it was Winchell, he reported that George Jessel had invented a new drink called the Bloody Mary. This was in the late 1920s. <laughs> they, credited, they credited George Schlatter, or sorry, with George Jessel, with the invention of the Bloody Mary. And in in the article, Winchell mentioned that he had been with this woman named Mary, and that he named it after her. And she was Ted Healy's girlfriend or wife. And so Ted Healy did not know that George Jessel had been hanging around with his woman till he read this article about how he had named the Bloody Mary after her. So they were backstage, I think in Chicago at some vaudeville house, and Ted Healy um, shot a gun not to shoot him, but to basically make him go deaf right by Jessel's ear. Uh, <laughs> fired a loaded pistol, and Jessel couldn't hear for a week. He couldn't go oh on stage because his ears were, were ringing. I believe that's the story, yeah. Uh, oh my God! So, so
1: Jessel must have had a few moments of Schadenfreude when when uh, when Ted Healy came to a bad end.
3: Yeah, and then there was that other sort of famous anecdote because George Jessel would not have survived the Me Too era. You know, he was known for having sex <laughs> with fourteen yes. year old girls on a regular basis. And uh, there's a famous story on the Red Skelton show. They had an animal act and it urinated all over the stage. And Red Skelton came back out and said, Oh, it looks like uh, Jessel's girlfriend has been here. Meaning that, you know, she was a toddler who had read herself. (laughs) Oh, my
0: God.
2: So heartwarming. So what? He thought Jessel had fucked his girlfriend?
3: Yeah, yeah, that was what the conclusion he came wow. to based on the fact that Winchell had mentioned that they were both together at the same time.
2: Insane. And and now, what was your most recent or most factual uh, case of uh, Ted Healy dying? Oh, well, yeah. What's your take on
1: the, well, mys- the mysterious that. death of Ted Healy?
3: Yeah, I didn't read that new book that came out, which is supposedly debunks the story about uh, Wallace Bury. Uh, Uh, curb stomping him to death and then covering it up saying that sailors did it. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a take on it. I took a lot of heat, uh, when my book came out from nerdy stooge fans for (laughs) quoting, uh, the Mo Howard biography or autobiography where he says, that Wallace Bury uh, probably curb stomped Ted Healy, and a lot of nerds were like, "Ah, that's been debunked." But I sometimes go for the better story. You know, Why not? I don't want these stories yeah. to be debunked. Print, print the legend. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, the stooge fundamentalists came for you, huh? <laughs>
3: wasn't <laughs> Cubby, wasn't
1: Cubbly, Cubby broccoli the producer of the Bond films involved in that altercation too?
3: Yeah, Cubby broccoli. W- Cubby Broccoli was involved in some way. MGM, a lot of these early MGM guys, like Eddie Mannix, who was the fixer, sure. and a lot of these people, uh, Samuel Marks was another guy. They really knew how to um, to exercise their clout and cover things up. But of course, now it's all uh, kind of come out. Busby Berkeley was another famous one yeah. when he killed somebody in uh, a car drinking and driving. Yeah yeah, 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 on Mulholland Drive. That was a famous and one. did yeah, Clark Gable
2: up. killed someone in his
3: car? I, I I don't know about that. I, the I know about Clark Gable and uh, his love child, David Jansen. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, by all means,
2: expound well, on that. Isn't that. that
3: a famous? You guys don't know that. That's isn't that a famous, a famous, story yeah. famous rumor. Yeah. And you look at the headshots of David Jansen in the '50s. He just looks like Clark Gable without a mustache, Giant ears, same face. You know, I, I, I could completely believe it.
1: We're we're jumping all around here as we as we do. But on this, uh, <laughs> what do you what do you make of Drew's uh, claim that uh, that uh, Clark Gable was involved with Andy Devine sexually?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. I uh, and Vine Andy Vine we spread Andy that one? has a closet full of skeletons, come on, <laughs> of, of raspy voice skeletons. <laughs> Didn't we talk last time I was on the show about that town somewhere in America, there's a small town and everything is named after Andy Devine on the did. streets?
2: And, and well, Drew Friedman also <laughs> had a story. His stories, you know, disgust <laughs> even <and> me. <laughs> They're all crazy. <laughs> one of them was that there was a love affair <laughs> between... Eddie Cantor and Chimp Howard.
3: <laughs>
2: Based on what? I don't know.
3: Based well, on a drawing well, that Drew did. Uh, and then drawing. A story Drew, yeah, Drew, Drew, Drew illustration. Drew Friedman,
2: one of, his, <laughs> one of his evidence was that Chimp had long hair.
1: Drew, Drew, lo- Drew loves the whole Rock Hudson Jim Neighbors thing, though. He, d- he dined out on that.
3: Well, you know, there was a before Jim Neighbors came out of the came out of the closet. This elderly comedian, who's still alive and completely forgotten, never had much of a career in terms of fame. A guy named Jackie Curtis with two S's. Um, I've seen interviews him, he, with him
1: on your website.
3: Yeah, he yeah. did a bunch of Ed Sullivan shows. He was one of these guys who, every time you saw him, he was in a different comedy team. Curtis and Antone, Curtis and this, Curtis and that. And they never really clicked. But he told me that he attended. Rock Hudson and Jim Neighbors mock wedding that they had for private friends. I love it. A fake wedding in which um, they both dressed in wedding dresses, Rock Hudson and Jim Neighbors, and that they did. They exchanged vows and supposedly, Jackie Curtis insists this is true, they uh, released a photo album as a gag after the fact and he had photos of this wedding of rock hudson feeding jim neighbors the first piece of cake and getting icing all over his <laughs> face
1: fantastic uh, <laughs> this
3: is according to a 93 year old comedian so i i have a tendency to believe him even if it's not true and print print jimmy,
2: jimmy stewart actually did come out of the closet at one point jimmy stewart john jimmy stewart <laughs> Jim, Jim Neighbors, neighbors. Jimmy <laughs> yeah, Stewart, just, just before- like getting pissed on by by midgets, by midgets,
3: yes, <laughs> yeah. Jim Neighbors came out of the closet just maybe one or two years before he died. Yeah, he and his lover in Hawaii came yeah. out of the closet. yeah.
1: what? Th- this is uh, speaking of. <laughs> con- <laughs> I'm going to go back a little bit. We'll come. I'll come back and give you a fresh scandal in a minute, Gilbert. But, did, Gilbert, did you ever hear of a
2: comic named Murray Roman? It's boy. I mean, it sounds like a combination of twenty different comics, right? And I bring it yeah. up because yeah. sort Roman. of a, he,
1: he he sort of leads to a turning point in in Cliff's career oh. because and, and explain <laughs> Cliff because I think our our and our readers a lot of our listeners got the book, but I think people would be interested to know how you transition from being a comic to the foremost authority, yeah. if I may uh, well, quote uh, yeah. the professor
3: Irwin. Uh, Murray Roman was an old school guy pretending to be young and hip in the late sixties. He had a comedy record and that's how I was introduced to him called you can't beat people up and have them say, I love you. It was on Bill Cosby's record label, (laughs) Tetragrammaton in 1969. It had a kaleidoscopic psychedelic cover. It was the weirdest comedy record. It had liner notes by Tommy Smothers from the Smothers brothers. And it wasn't a very funny record, but when you listen to it, he sounded like a guy doing an impression of Lenny Bruce. Like he had that cadence. Yeah. he was an older guy, but he was like, yeah, man, can you dig it? You know, doing all this sort of slang that even coming out of the guy's voice, you could tell was labored, but it was a psychedelic comedy record. He would hit a punchline and then the punchline would go into reverb echoing and then he'd go (laughs) into his next joke (laughs) and then music would cut in and out of, out of each of the jokes. And I was very curious about this record because I'd never heard about this guy, Murray Roman. And I found it in a flea market when I was 24. And when I was still doing stand-up, I met the Smothers Brothers at a festival or at a show. And I asked Tommy Smothers, who is Murray Roman? Because I have this record and you wrote the liner notes. He goes, oh, Murray was one of our writers, but he died uh, young. But in the 50s, he was an agent at MCA. And he went to prison for some sort of fraud scandal stealing from his clients. He had represented the Everly brothers at one point. Wow. And he went to jail for like five or six years. And when he came out of jail in order to reinvent himself, he became a stand-up comic and started playing places like The Hungry Eye and The Purple Onion. Wild. But he was 20 years older than all these other guys like Dick Gregory, but he tried to be hip and cool. And he put out this comedy record and Tommy Smothers hired him as a writer on the show. So and guy so goes from being would...
1: arrested for fraud to reinventing himself as a comic to being a Smothers Brothers writer.
3: Exactly. Quite and a journey. He was journey. part of that same writer's room with Steve Martin and Carl Gottlieb yeah. and Bob Hamilton Ein- Camp Bob Einstein. And, and Bob Einstein. Yeah, all the legends. He was in that writer's room. And so I decided to write an article about it. It was really the first time I ever wrote about an old comedian. It was about this guy, Murray Roman. I phoned Tommy Smothers. You know, we had met him a month earlier. And talked to him for an hour about it. And then he said, you know, who would know more about this than me is Steve. Have you talked to Steve yet? And I said, Steve? He goes, Steve Martin. I said, no, I haven't talked to him yet. You know, I'm a 25-year-old kid in in Canada. I have no access to Steve Martin. He says, I'll phone Steve Martin and tell him to call you. How about that? An hour later, my phone rang and it was Steve Martin. He was on set of some movies. He goes, I hear you're writing about Murray Roman. I said, yes. We talked for like an hour about Murray Roman. And then when it was over... Steve Martin kept me on the line. He goes, who else are you writing about? Cause I'm a really, I'm really into a lot of those old guys. He goes, you know who one of my favorites is Steve Martin is saying this, you know who one of my favorites is Jackie Vernon. I love Jackie Vernon. And so Steve Martin and I bonded over our mutual love of Jackie Vernon, and that sort of set me on the path of researching and writing about old comedians. That was the start. I of love
1: that. I mean, I love asking guests about turning points in their in their yeah. lives. But isn't that cool? I mean, that's how he transitioned from being a wow. performer into kind of. And you, you kind of knew at that point, this is for me. This is this is well, a life Tommy, for
3: me. It, well, if Tommy Smothers and Steve Martin were enthusiastic about what I was doing, I took that as you know. Maybe a nice indication. Absolutely,
1: keep doing. And that. have you heard? Have you heard any of Gilbert's Jackie Vernon? By the way,
2: no. Here's, please, here's some slides from my vacation. <laughs> here's Manuel, our tour guide, leading us around the quicksand. Here we are from the waist up. Here's
3: a bunch of picks and ropes and things. <laughs> <laughs> Did
1: you ever see anybody you know, do Jackie Vernon before? You know,
3: well, you know there's a comedy record, maybe you could uh, emulate this, there's a comedy record of Jackie Vernon singing Yesterday by the Beatles, doing a cover in his voice. Wow! Have you ever heard that? Yesterday, <laughs> all my troubles
2: seem so far away. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but he's got the uh, clicker uh, in his hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, and Hal, Hal Hal Roach had collaborations with Mussolini. I thought you were going to say Hal
1: Holbrook. Hal
2: Holbrook
3: <laughs> also <laughs> yes. involved with Mussolini. Yes. There were t- there were two two people in comedy. That were among Mussolini's biggest supporters and not just Mussolini's biggest supporters in the (laughs) United States or in comedy, but just Mussolini's two biggest supporters, period. One was Hal Roach, of course, who produced all those two real comedy shorts, Our Gang, Laurel and Hardy. The other was Will Rogers. You know, that saying, I never met a man I didn't like, it may be in reference to this. Will Rogers advocated on behalf of Mussolini in the 1920s in his newspaper column, not as satire, not as humor, said, we need somebody like Mussolini in the United States. And so both of them were sort of uh, fascist sympathizers in the late 20s and early 30s. And Hal Roach went into collusion with the Mussolini regime. They were going to produce pro-fascist Italy propaganda films at Hal Roach Studios in Hollywood. Um, His son... Um, I forget his name, Vitturio Vittorio Vittorio, I think. Vittorio. Vittorio.
1: Yeah.
3: Flew to Hollywood, and they had a big reception for him, star-studded invitation, um, a black-tie gala. Betty Davis terms. was at that
1: was at that event. Betty
3: Davis was there, and she yeah. wore a scarf that was in the color of the Italian flag. And at this point, it was well-known. Italy was a fascist country. This wasn't the beginnings of it. It had been fascist for almost 10 years uh, by this point. And they kind of thought, well... It's a head of state. You know, that's all they cared about. We want to be there and be seen. Eventually, the sort of left-wing people in in Hollywood uh, were agitating against this. A lot of the screenwriters who were later blacklisted, one of their first sort of political acts was speaking out against this relationship between Hal Roach Studios and Mussolini and essentially ran them out of town. They canceled this plan because of the blowback that they got from a lot of the sort of progressive Hollywood people at the time.
2: So Betty Davis was a fascist sympathizer. No, she, probably, she just attended
1: this party. Oh.
2: <laughs> I, that I like. <laughs> but that,
1: that's one of the most interesting chapters in the comedians too, is where you're talking about the the early days of radio, Cantor's early days in radio, and how much money yes, it- Cantor had raised for uh, children vic- victims of the Nazis.
3: Eddie, Eddie Cantor was the first celebrity to try and help Jewish refugees escape Nazi Germany, starting around 1933, 1934, and then it became an official campaign as part of the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League in 1935. And because he was doing that, he would get heckled at radio broadcasts by fascist sympathizers in the audience. So there's a famous story around 1936, 1937, or thirty eight. Eddie Cantor was doing a live broadcast at KNX in Los Angeles, the CBS affiliate. When the show was over, and this is when, like, Park Karkas was on the show and Burt Gordon, the Mad Russian, was on the show. After the show, Eddie Cantor would address the live studio audience and make an appeal on behalf of Jewish refugees and fighting against Nazism. And remember, this is four years before America entered the war. Right. He was heckled by a fascist sympathizer in the audience who said, stick to jokes, you don't know what you're talking about. And Burt Gordon, the mad Russian, ran after the dude in the studio audience and attacked him and started beating the shit out of him. Got into a big fist fight on the floor of CBS. And um, there was a meeting with CBS, Eddie Cantor, and the American Tobacco um, Company, who made Lucky Strike Cigarettes, saying... You cannot speak out against Hitler anymore. You cannot speak on behalf of Jewish refugees anymore. Cantor, you're going to ruin our, 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 you know, our good standing with bigots in our uh, buying audience. You know, you cannot talk about politics anymore. And Eddie Cantor wouldn't, but there was this pressure to maybe cancel the Eddie Cantor show because he wouldn't stop speaking out against Hitler in
2: uh, 1935, 36, 37, 38. How about that, Gil? That's scary. Yeah. Yeah, could, ha- could happen again. That's very scary. So what was the what was the sponsors again? Tobacco company. Uh, the Amer- the pack- yeah,
3: the American Tobacco Company, um, uh, which they famously parodied in Mad Men. They, they were one of the yeah. most powerful companies in all of radio and advertising. They sponsored everything. So basically what they said went, not just about politics, but if they didn't like your joke, it had to be taken out. If the sponsor, if the tobacco company didn't like your joke, even though they had no creative involvement in the show they had final say over what uh, ended up in the program
1: that stuff is wild it's in in the book too in the, in the section you say the ad agency in charge of the account young and Rubican sent a memo to the network saying we are of the opinion that we should present eddie Cantor to the public strictly as a funny man and try to avoid any publicity that would indicate that he ever had a serious thought or is guilty of yeah. a serious deed
0: yeah wow. you, people, they
1: didn't want him taken people, seriously
3: well, people forget in that pre- pre-war pre period, before 1941, there were a lot of isolationists and a lot of fascist sympathizers in the United States, and they bought Lucky Strike cigarettes, so they didn't want to offend them, even though they were fascist sympathizers.
2: Incredible. There was this thing I always heard about where people would be accused of, um, uh, like, sort of like a pre- premature thing.
3: Uh, fascist anti-fascist sympathies right like right. yeah the the hollywood anti-nazi league was part of that anybody who was part of the hollywood anti-nazi league which was founded in 1935 later during the red scare were often blacklisted because they felt that it was an indication that you were a communist if you were opposed to the nazis before 1941 because largely in the united states it largely, was the Communist Party of the United States that was advocating against Nazism, probably for self-serving reasons, but they still were the only ones really sure. speaking out during that period.
1: I want to ask you about the Red Scare stuff from the book uh, uh, in a second, but w- w- while we're on the subject of Nazis, <laughs> were, the, yeah, yeah. were the three <laughs> did the three Stooges end up on Hitler's death list? Well, I've never found I had confirmation heard
2: that.
3: About- <laughs> yeah, certainly, supposedly. Chaplin supposedly there was this thing called the kill list that was sort of like Nixon's enemies list in the sixties. Hitler had this kill list. I have never been able to find verification that there was such a list, but supposedly Charlie Chaplin was on that list. The three stooges were on that list. Jack Benny was on that list. And the reason was because Charlie Chaplin made the great dictator. The three stooges made you nuts. He spy and uh, Jack Benny made to be or not to be. And supposedly, ridiculing Hitler was uh, a reason for he was really pissed off especially with Charlie Chaplin because Charlie Chaplin wasn't Jewish the other comedians were Jewish so he hated them regardless but Chaplin was apparently Hitler's favorite maybe the mustache was influenced by Chaplin some Some people theorized it um so yeah supposedly the three stooges I think again it was Mo Howard who said that in his autobiography
2: yeah, because they did another one. There's those those nuts, these spies. Oh, you'll never hyle again. Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: or I'll I'll
1: never
3: hyle again.
0: Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: There's yeah. there's some fantastic Hal Roach uh, two reel studio shorts um, that are all star car- people playing Hitler and people playing Mussolini. And those are really well uh, worth seeking out. I think there's two of them. One of them takes place in hell. So there's a guy in a de- devil suit, like prodding Mussolini and Hitler to do things. They're very, very broad comedies from 1943-44 that are worth uh, worth seeking out.
2: We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but first a word from our sponsor.
1: Well, on the subject of of, of the Red Scare, and again, the book is such a page turner. Uh, and I, you know, I've read it twice, but in but in doing research for having you back, I I dug into it again, and just the the gold. I mean, I couldn't the the vaudeville chapter, as I told you on the phone, is my favorite. And we want to ask before we get off with you, we have to ask about Swain's rats and cats again, but because <laughs> Gilbert and I are just uh, obsessed with that. On the subject of the Red Scare and McCarthyism. Uh, and some of the people that got caught up in it, I want to ask you specifically about one person, and that is uh, M- uh, Mr. Julius Marx.
3: Yeah, well, Groucho Marx was hosting You Bet Your Life at the time, and one of his uh, lead mu- musicians, is it say there? Jerry Fielding. Jerry Fielding. I can't remember who it was. One of his yeah. lead musicians. In the- I think it was. It is? Uh, so one of his yeah. lead musicians in the orchestra of "You Bet Your Life," you remember when they spun the wheel and they would play music or they play Groucho on and off. Um, he had been named uh, in Red Channels or one of those um, Red Scare magazines, newspapers, and they wanted to get rid of him. And Groucho said, "Well, no, I don't. I don't want to get rid of him." And the reason he had been named was because he had been advocating for the integration of the musicians' unions. In those days, in the 40s, mm-hmm. there was a union just for black musicians and a union just for white musicians. And the guy from You Bet Your Life Orchestra was advocating that they integrate. So this is why they went after him. And Groucho Marx initially stood up for him, but then it sounded like DeSoto or whoever the sponsor was, was thinking about pulling their sponsorship on this because of this issue. And so Groucho said, okay, go ahead and, and fire him, and they did. And he was blacklisted for this musician for several years, and Groucho said in the 70s that it was the only real major regret of his career was um, buckling to those pressures.
1: Yeah, that must have hurt him because he was, he was known for being a stand-up guy. I mean, he came, he came out, when he got a little clout, he came out against ethnic acts.
3: Yeah, and Groucho Marx and, had a big and- FBI file. There was an FBI fi- You can read it online. There was an FBI file. Most of it redacted. It's still all um, scribbled in black marker. But in Groucho Marx's FBI uh, file, there's a complaint because on one episode of You Bet Your Life, he referred to America as the United Snakes. Of America mm-hmm. and these angry sort of John Birch society type people wrote in these angry letters saying, I think Groucho Marx is a red. I think he's a commie. You should look into him. And so J. Edgar Hoover did amass this large file on Groucho Marx. And then in the late 60s, Groucho Marx came in out in favor of the Chicago eight when Abby Hoffman was I arrested remember. in Chicago. And Nicholas Ray, the filmmaker who made Rebel Without a Cause, was planning a movie about Uh, the Chicago trials in the late 60s about the hippies versus the police. And he was going to cast Groucho Marx as the judge in the trial, in the Abby Hoffman trial. It never happened. But all of these things just sort of um, thickened his FBI file because uh, he was considered a a famous name who maybe was giving um, uh, credence to radical causes.
1: Well, I'd like to think his heart was in the right place and that he really did regret the fielding incident. And you know one, one, yeah, of the, he did, yeah. one of the things in your book is what you were talking about uh, the old days of st- these stereotype acts of course Gilbert laughs you know the yeah. merry wops
2: Oh yes <laughs> but,
1: but these 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 Jewish acts and these really these these really unpleasant unflattering stereotypes yes.
3: Yeah there's a, there was a guy named uh, Harry Green you guys ever talked about Harry Green No I don't think so Harry Green between 1930 and 35 at Paramount you watch old movies He's in them all the time. He was essentially the Jewish Step and He did this way over the top, broad, ethnic character. He wore these round horn rim glasses and it was all Yiddishisms. And like Step and fetch it, he would mumble things under his breath that weren't in the script that if you understood Yiddish were detectable as these sort of, I don't know if they were subversive, but they were off script things that wow. normally wouldn't have made it past Harry the Harry Green. Harry Green, but it was pretty racist. When you watch it today, it's like really cringeworthy. He's in a bunch of early Bing Crosby movies, and then they got rid of him. He was like persona non grata after 1935 because it was very broad, very offensive. Even in the early 30s, that style of playing a Jewish character like that was already considered um, taboo and old-fashioned.
2: And one of my always favorite topics, famous anti-Semites in Hollywood. (laughs) Where yes. do you begin? Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, the two, two biggest that I can think of from two different eras in the 20s and 30s, of course, it was Frank Fay. But in the 60s, 50s, and 60s, it was Walter Brennan. Walter Brennan was the biggest anti Semite, and he was a racist as well, according to his son, when um, Walter Brennan was making that show. What's it called? Will Sonnet? Uh, the
1: the, uh, the, of the Will Guns, Sonnet? Guns of Will Sonnet?
3: Was that his, was that his show? Yeah. Yeah, he was in that show, and he was on set of that program the morning that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and when news got to set about the assassination, supposedly Walter Brennan started doing one of those Treasure of the Sierra Madre jigs, dancing and jigging in celebration of the assassination. So he hated hated Jewish people. He hated black people. He thought that they were all in the pocket of some sort of communist uh, conspiracy. Walter Brennan. Well,
2: I know there was that character actor Eugene
3: Paulette, who they used to call oh, Froggy. Right.
1: Yeah, Eugene Paulette. Yeah, yeah. He was in like yeah. company,
2: and juice.
3: Yeah, he he played Friar Tuck in The Adventures of Robin Hill, right. famously, and he refused to sit in the commissary with uh, other um, black actors at Warner Brothers. So I'm not sure. Uh, who offhand? But yeah, he, he, he firmly believed in segregation. But that was in the 1940s when it was still federal policy to have segregation, whereas uh, in the 60s, um, Walter Brennan, at the height of the civil rights movement, was calling out civil rights activists as being uh, uh, no good commies.
1: Fucking Walter Brennan. Wow. Son of a bitch. Well, you know, there's a healthy dose of anti-Semitism behind the blacklist in the first place. I mean, in in addition to trying to weaken or if not bust unions outright,
3: yeah, absolutely. you know, a, a, a lot of that grew out effective. of there
1: are too many Jews in Hollywood, and this we you know we've got to do something about this, and
3: yeah, you know, it's weird in it's those dovetailed. days, Madison. In those days, Madison Square Garden could be rented to any sort of quote unquote civic organization. So American Nazis in the yeah, year you can 19- see that you
1: can see those videos online. Yeah, in
3: 1946, after the war. Uh, the American Nazi Party and some of their sort of um, associates, racist groups, rented Madison Square Garden and held a pro-fascist rally. And the name of the pro-fascist rally was the Friends of Frank Faye. Because <laughs> Frank
1: Fay, <laughs> The first stand-up. Frank Fay.
3: Frank Fay was coming out on side of the Catholics in the Spanish Civil War rather than the loyalists. It was the loyal, you know, it was a big cause in the 30s for pro- progressives versus regressives because left wing people, left wing people were being murdered in Spain at that time in the 30s. And so, actors' equity, the actors' union, came out with this statement in support of those fighting against the fascists in Spain. But because the fascists were aligned with the Catholic Church and Frank Fay was Catholic, he felt that this was an attack on the Catholic Church. So it turned into this big to-do, and Frank Fay got kicked out of the Actors' Union. And so fascists came out in support of Frank Fay, and they did all these pro-Nazi speeches and racist speeches at Madison Garden. Frank Fay was their guest of honor, and they called it the Friends of Frank Fay.
1: How about that, Gil?
2: Oh, my God. God. Frank
1: Fay, who you credit as being basically the first the first official kind of stand-up comic.
3: The first stand-up comedian. To
1: stand, stand there and tell
3: jokes. Yeah, instead of doing a character, instead of doing costumes, instead right. of doing shtick, he just went on stage and talked in a tuxedo like a normal person, and it became uh, very influential. Jack Benny, Bob Hope, Milton Berle, they all cited Frank Fay as a huge influence on their style of stand-up, and at the same time, they all criticized him for being this raving racist. And of course, Milton yeah. Burl famously attacked Frank Faye when he came off stage at the Palace because he heard Frank Faye whispering under his breath about Milton Burl, get that little Jew kid out of here. Get that little Jew kid out of here. And Milton Burl waited for him when Frank Faye Got off stage and he smashed him in the face with this piece of plywood from like the scenery and tore open his nose and Frank Fay had to go to the hospital. Milton Berle was so enraged.
2: How about that, Gil? Oh, I like that. <laughs> Finally, a great Milton Berle story that doesn't have to do with this cock.
1: <laughs> you sure it was plywood
2: that he hit him with? <laughs> now I I was reading somewhere that Meyer Lansky. Used to organize like gangs to beat up the Nazis at these rallies.
3: Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know Good that stuff. at all. I did know. Gonna I did know that, that. Meyer Lan- I did know that Meyer Lansky was the connection. Why Steve Allen broadcast a number of Steve Allen shows from Havana in the months right before the Cuban Revolution in 1959? They did all these remotes. Lou Costello was on a lot of them. And there were a lot of threats from Cuban revolutionaries saying Steve Allen, the Steve Allen show, stay out of Cuba because this is where we're about to take it over. And it was right around that time. And Bill Dana was with them. And he said that at one point they had to cancel an episode of the Steve Allen show because it had been inundated with stink bombs um, from revolutionaries who didn't take kindly to uh, Steve Allen colluding with Meyer Lansky and using Cuba as their sort of foreign playground.
1: Steve Allen, a good old radical. Yeah, a guy who also hired people who were blacklisted.
3: Steve Allen hired people that were blacklisted, but he never ever hired a black comedian on the Tonight Show when he Is that had the true? chance to do so. When Steve Allen had the chance, and he would bring on black jazz musicians, he would talk in favor of integration and the civil rights movement. But when he had the chance to book black comedians like Timmy Rogers or whoever, he said he wouldn't do it because white audiences would never accept jokes coming from a black man like Mort Saul. And then just a couple years later, Dick Gregory emerged and appeared on the Jack Parr Tonight Show, smashing that theory. But Steve Allen, for all the stuff that he did in civil rights, he literally refused to black, refused strange. to book black comedians. Now, how,
1: how strange and disappointing. And on the subject of disappointing, what the hell is with Luke Costello supporting McCarthy?
3: Lou Costello, I mean, depressing. a lot of people... Oh. Well, a lot of people just heard the word communist and just assumed that that meant I have to fight against it. So in the civil rights era, Martin Luther King and a lot of the people around him, Bayard Rustin and James Farmer, famous black civil rights organizers had been members of the Communist Party back in the 1930s. So that was enough reason for you to be suspect and considered an enemy, even if you were fighting for a good cause later on, you know? So Luke Costello wanted everybody on the set of the and Costello movies to sign loyalty oaths yeah. and would fire anybody who didn't. And one of the people he demanded sign a loyalty oath was this guy, John Grant, who I think wrote their version of who's on first based it on a previous routine and kind of punched it up. And if you watch any of the old Abbott and Costello movies in the credits, it always says special material by, and I think his name is John Grant. Is that the right name? Well, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll,
1: we'll, we'll double check it.
3: Lou Costello demanded that, that, uh, he signed this loyalty oath and he goes, Lou, you've known me for 20 or 30 years. You're questioning my loyalty now. And he refused to sign it, so he fired him. So that was the end of their association. After that, there were no more Abbott and Costello movies that said special material, buy.
1: How about that, Gil? Jeez. This is the disillusionment what else got episode. On that this is a <laughs> yeah, these are depressing story. the most
3: depressing stories. I love stories. this what shit.
2: I sent uh, you a list
3: of stories yeah. that are more upbeat.
2: Come okay, on. How, about, I, how about? I just wanted uh, to hear about Abbot and Costello's porn collection. <laughs> what about? What about
1: that? This is on the email thread that you and I are on, uh, Cliff. With yeah, well, uh, the with Scott it's Larry in the FBI and
3: file. It's in Abbott and Costello's FBI file. The FBI <laughs> said that Lou <Luke> Costello <laughs> had pornography coming out of his ears. That's the phrase <laughs> that they use. Because we
1: heard Red Skelton was the big porn collector. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that's true. Red Skelton and Lou Costello and George Raft have the See, biggest I heard, collections of pornography in Hollywood. I heard Bud
2: Abbott had a, a tremendous, tremendous changing?
3: There's also a story. I'm trying to rem- remember who it involves between Lou Costello and a comedian who had children. I can't remember who. They played a prank on them and sent a film print that was supposed to be a children's film. Uh, maybe it was that that movie he did where he grows into a giant. What's that Luke Costello movie? 30-Foot
1: Bride of Candy Rock? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah.
3: yeah. Something like there that? Was, so, somebody was requesting a print of that movie, and instead of sending over that very innocuous children's movie, they sent out a print of uh, hardcore pornography and screened it in front of this children's party accidentally. Luke Costello's idea of a prank.
1: Oh, gee. Now you're getting into Gilbert's area. Yes. What about this one? What about pull one off the list? Uh, by the way, I can't. It, it disturbs me to know that Stinky had to sign a loyalty oath.
2: Stinky signed a loyalty <laughs> well, oath. Anybody that worked on Evan Costello.
1: Charlie <laughs> so. I, I'm extrapolating. What is this about you, people loving to pelt Rudy Valley with fruit? And please oh, tell us. Yes. Please tell us there's a Cesar Romero connection.
3: <laughs> there, there may have, it may have inspired Cesar Romero. He was breaking into the biz at the time. Uh, there was a trend, you know, in the old days, they always talked about how there were these college student crazes, like swallowing goldfish or cramming yourself into a telephone booth. You sure. know, there's all these, Yeah, the comedians would always reference that in the fifties. Well, in the early thirties, there was this trend of attending Rudy Valley concerts when he was already at the height of his fame, had a hit radio show and pelting him with rotten fruit. So it <laughs> happened in Boston. It happened in Detroit. It happened in Chicago. Uh, Every concert that Rudy Valley did for several months, college students were throwing a rotten fruit at him (laughs) and they would have to uh, stop the show. If you look at newspaper articles about Rudy Valley in the early 30s, this is constantly coming up. It became a trend, a craze to assault uh, Rudy Valley with rotten fruit. And Rudy Valley, of course, was known for being super temperamental, involved in a lot of scandals. He punched a busboy in Miami Beach on... on, um, Unconscious because he spoke to him right before he went on stage, <laughs> um, and he was sued.
1: <laughs> so it's Gilbert's done that.
2: <laughs> you've you've, you've cold cocked people
1: all, for approaching all you the time <laughs> before you get on stage.
2: Now I, I now Rudy Valley sounds like he was probably a racist man. I thought
3: he was semi. the
1: cheapest man in Hollywood. That's what I'd heard about Rudy Valley. He
3: was very cheap. His autobiography, if you can find a copy, is a must read. Okay, there's an entire cha- there's an entire <laughs> chapter. About forty pages, just devoted to settling an old score with Victor Borga.
1: Oh, well, yeah, love to read that,
3: Rudy Valley versus Victor Borga. Forty pages says that I gave him a start in this business. He's a he's a he's an ingrate. He's a lowlife. He doesn't blah blah blah. Just goes on and on and on, ranting and raving about Victor Borga. It must be at least uh, a thirty or forty pages. Well, your
1: friend Ileana Douglas uh, knew Rudy Valley. Early yes. in her career. Ask, ask her that's about right. that. Okay, what about the story about the kingfish that's on, <laughs> your, that's on your list here? Uh, the I actor, love this already. The actor who played the kingfish, Tim Moore. Yes. Tim Moore, Andy.
3: Tim Moore, who was considered one of the funniest or maybe the funniest of all Chitlin Circuit comedians. Jack Carter told me that he thought Tim Moore was the funniest man who ever lived. He knew him personally, would go and see him perform live. But in the 1950s, Tim Moore got arrested for assault with a weapon. He went to his fridge, and the roast beef that he had been saving was gone. <laughs> his wife had apparently his wife had apparently eaten it, and he tried to murder his wife for eating his roast beef. And that was shortly. You should see the color Gilbert's turning. <laughs> I love that so
1: much you lunatic.
3: <laughs> I love that stuff too?
1: Here's another. Go ahead.
3: I got oh, another I just gonna say, I got another good one I just here. Get, why, why did Sammy Davis say, right? go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Oh, why Sammy did, Davis Why
1: did Sammy yeah. Davis join the Church of Satan?
3: Oh god. Yeah, 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 he was uh you know, it was that it was the early 70s when Sammy Davis Jr was doing a lot of sort of offbeat things. You know, he dated Linda Lovelace, I think, a couple times in the early 70s. He would screen Deep Throat for private parties, Sammy Davis Jr. So he was getting into these sort of things you don't usually associate with Sammy. One (laughs) of them was uh, uh, Anton LaVey. He became friends with Anton LaVey, the high priest of the Church of Satan, and got into Satanism, doing ritualistic, Satanistic uh, rituals sacrificing things and, and look at the look on this
1: man's face Cliff <laughs> <laughs> his jaw is hitting the table
3: this stuff is not hard to find it's also not cloaked in rumor like you can find like Los Angeles Times articles from the 70s about Sammy Davis Jr. joining the Church of Satan wow and this didn't work against him no <laughs> nah, man he was the candy man there was you couldn't you couldn't uh, take anything from the like <laughs>
1: Tom, why, uh, why did Jerry Lewis not like Lynn Redgrave?
3: Oh, yeah, shit, man. I wish I brought that quote with me. I think I can paraphrase it. But you probably have talked about this on your show before in the late 70s when Jerry Lewis was starring in Hell's a Poppin' on Broadway. He did a version of Hell's a Poppin'. Yeah, sure. And it was a famous debacle. It closed shortly. Jerry Lewis blamed the critics And he pulled a gun again, another pulling a gun story. Jerry Lewis pulled a gun on a reporter from New York magazine. You can read that online as well. It's part of the story that the New York magazine article writer wrote. Um, but he also was blaming Lynn Redgrave for the failure of the show and they did not get along. And I guess one of the journalists asked Jerry Lewis what he thought of Lynn Redgrave. And he said, uh, uh, he goes, I should have taken my cock out and pissed on her. because the Jerry Lewis quote.
1: Jerry, classy as always. Yeah. <laughs> now Gilbert's happy. <laughs> you're a, you're a sick individual.
0: What else is on the list?
1: <laughs> now you, you had a run-in with Jerry? You, said, you told me on the phone that only two comics that you've interviewed over the years were, were genuinely unkind to you.
3: Yeah, rude. the only two old guys that were sort of rude were Jerry Lewis and Marty Allen. The isn't Jerry Lewis story. Marty, Marty's
1: like the, the nicest guy in the
3: yeah. world. Not to Cliff. Yeah, the Jerry Lewis story isn't that good. It was just he was very non communicative. I told it on the show before about with Drew about how yeah. Drew Friedman set it up for me. He said he's waiting, expecting your call. You can call him right now. That's right. I did. That's right. And then Jerry pretended like he wasn't waiting for my call, and he goes, "I never do interviews after Drew had said he'll right. do an interview." But Marty Allen... Let's blame that one on Marty Allen was bizarre. I was interviewing Marty Allen, and I would say, um, so in 1955, you were in another comedy team with a guy named Mitch DeWood. Uh, What can you tell me about Mitch DeWood? And then Marty Allen would go, "Uh uh-huh. So? So what? (laughs) Marty was having a
1: bad day. Jeez. After every
3: question, he said, so what? What's your point? So? So what? And this went on and on. And then I was talking to mark Marin, because marty allen did mark Marin's podcast as well and as you know he mark does his show out of his house sure and i said uh, marty allen was really rude to me was he rude to you he goes no he wasn't rude to me but he absolutely destroyed my bathroom because <laughs> apparently marty allen didn't have the best aim at the age of 90 he said that he looked like he had intentionally ruined mark's bathroom
1: <laughs> there you go gil <laughs>
3: But I've never heard bad
2: stuff about Marty Allen. You've been in
1: that bathroom. You've yeah, been in Mark yes, bathroom. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a, the first we had Marty on this show, and he was an angel. So if this shot, this takes us back.
2: Gino's going to be very upset. Yes, <laughs> about this. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast
3: after this.
1: <gasps> what about this one's right up Gilbert Sally? Oh. What about the George Goober Lindsay story?
3: Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, George goober Lindsay was a uh, semi-regular on Hee Haw, and he and yes, Grandpa he Jones, was. you know, Grandpa Jones was considered the the patriarch of country comedy, of hillbilly comedy. He was an older guy, very experienced. He was also very conservative, and in fact, talking about the Red Scare, Grandpa Jones recorded a 78 novelty single in the early 50s called I Ain't No Communist. So he was a pretty conservative dude. <laughs> Jeez. And George Goober Lindsay used to love to annoy Grandpa Jones. At Hee Haw, they all shared one big communal dressing room with the exception of Roy Clark and Buck Owens, who had their own, but everybody else was in the same big sort of airplane hangar of a dressing room. And Goober Lindsay used to take his underwear off and then tuck his cock and balls between his legs like he had a vagina and walk over <laughs> to Grandpa Jones and say he was a girl touch it touch it I'm a girl and grandpa Jones would get annoyed and storm out that's great <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> that made him happy
1: uh, you just you made his night what are you speaking of that speaking of balls what do you know about Mr. Belvedere sitting on his own balls that's a that's a hollywood yeah uh,
2: i i was i was on the sound i was in the studio I was doing, I was a guest on another show, and Mr. Belvedere was being recorded on another soundstage, and all of a sudden, the talk throughout the studio was that Mr. Belvedere sat on his balls.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. What do you know about (laughs) this, Cliff? I don't know much about Mr. Belvedere's balls, but I do know that... uh, (laughs) I do, I do think that Bob Euchre is one of the most uh, uh, underrated and hilarious dudes hilarious. in the show business. You should get him on your show.
1: Why did Steve Allen fire Alan Sherman?
3: Oh, oh, I love this story. Your friend, Steve Binder, who you interviewed on yes, your show, lovely man. Told me this show, told me this story because I had found a thing in my research that Alan Sherman had been fired just one episode into um, his tenure as the producer of the Steve Allen show an early 60s version of of the Steve Allen show and the reason he was fired I love this and I don't know why some practical joker doesn't do this more often during Steve Allen's monologue or when he was talking whenever he was saying anything that uh, wasn't supposed to be funny uh, Alan Sherman would flick on the applause sign and the (laughs) laughter (laughs) sign (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he did
3: that, like, several times throughout the show, so just for no reason people started applauding when Steve Allen is talking. <laughs> 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 and so Steve Binder got, or Alan Sherman got fired uh, shortly after that. And I'll jump back to it. I'll, so I'll jump
1: back to I love that one, too. I'll jump back to a few from the list, but this is one of Gilbert's favorite subjects, and I was reading this part of the book over again last night, and that's the, that's the stuff about the nightclubs and the mob. And specifically, yeah. uh, the Joey—you know, Joey Lewis. You know this story? Yeah, that yeah. They slit his, they slit his throat. Yeah, his, yeah. They, what a absolutely horrible story. He was working for Capone, I guess.
3: Yeah, he was working. Uh, I can't remember if it was Capone or the rival faction was Capone, but he did something. He had a residency um, in Chicago at a nightclub, and he went and accepted another gig without permission. He did not realize that he was you know, the mobs comedian, and you couldn't go and take another gig without their say. So he took a gig at a rival mob club. And he said in defiance, he said, you can't tell me what to do. You don't own me. And they said, yeah, we do own you. So later that night at his hotel room, he got a visit from three thugs, one who was apparently Sam Giacana before he was famous mobster. He was just an underling. And of course, uh, cut his uh, throat and almost cut out his tongue. And it's About w- weird when you watch Joey Lewis on Ed Sullivan later on, you can still see the c- scar on side of his face yep, from where yep, he was yep. sliced. And if you hear him, he's in a movie with um, Jane Withers called private buckaroo and another movie from that period. And his voice is so gravelly. Apparently before this incident, he had like a very sweet, smooth sing songy voice. But then afterwards he just has this crazy voice because he had to relearn how to talk and relearn how to acquire the ability to uh, to speak. But because he never squealed on the mafia, he became like their darling. And they set him up in all the best nightclubs in America, the Copacabana. the a weird twist. Ciro's. Yeah, he always played New Year's Eve uh, um, in those clubs. But yeah,
1: You know, it's funny because we've had a lot of people on the show. We've had uh, uh, Tony Sandler was here and Ronnie Shell, A lot of people who worked for the mob either in Vegas or in clubs. And you hear the same thing, which is they were better to us. Than the than the the corporate owners, the corporate landlords. Yeah. But when you read your book, I mean, Jack Carter on the run from a hitman. Shecky got beaten up at one point. Uh, what's the Jerry Lewis, uh, excuse me, the Joey Bishop story at a club called El Dumpo?
3: Yeah, <clears throat> Joey Bishop was in a comedy trio called the Bishop Brothers. And I'm pretty sure that none of them were brothers. There was a guy who lived <laughs> a long life named Rummy Bishop, who Drew Friedman loves because he's got this crazy-looking face <laughs> right? and was in a comedy team. And he's with named Bishop.
1: Rummy.
3: But I don't think they were actually brothers. But anyways, he was doing this trio, the Bishop brothers, um, some roadhouse. In fact, there's a photo of the crime scene. Um, a guy was murdered in the audience while they were on stage, and they just kept performing, pretending that nothing was happening because that, they were afraid Jill. that if they got off stage, they would see too much or they, they would get involved. So they just kept powering through their act. It was in New Jersey, some roadhouse in 46 or 47, yeah.
1: And Sammy Shore, Paulie's father, witnessed a murder from the stage?
3: Actually, before we get to that, one other thing about Joey Bishop. Yeah. Did you know, I may have mentioned this on your show before, did you know that in the late 40s he was briefly in a comedy team with Jack Sue of Barney Miller fame? No.
1: Oh, you're breaking news, buddy. I did not know that. Bishop,
3: Joey Bishop and Jack Sue did a two-man act in the late 40s it didn't last for very long. I don't know why, um, but there's a blurb in Billboard about them breaking up after having performed together for a while.
2: Jack Sue and Joey Bishop, Gilbert. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> it's mind-blowing. But what happened to Sammy Shore?
3: Sammy Shore was playing a place in Danville, Illinois. Again, a fight broke out in the audience and somebody was murdered. It was a mob-related dispute. Sammy Shore had a trumpet in his act at the time, and he started performing uh, The Saints Go Marching In just to sort of calm things in some way, just again, distract people and keep performing. And in doing so, the club uh, loved him. They said, you really held it together when that guy was murdered. We're going to hold you over for two more months. So Sammy had to keep performing in this place where there was a murder for another two months because they felt he did such a great job.
1: There you go, Gil. There's some yeah. there's some stories that challenge wow. the idea that the mom was so good to all. Of these performers. Cliff, this before is a we bleak episode. Uh, no, I love it. I love all this dark history. Let's good talk Lord. about this. Is this will lighten things up a little bit? You sent us uh, you sent us this wonderful list, and this is your new preoccupation, and that is yes. celeb, uh, celebrity franchises.
3: Oh yeah, but, yeah. In the yeah. late '60s and the early '70s, <clears throat> this was so common. Mostly because of Mini Pearl. We were talking about Hee Heeha. Mini Pearl had the most successful fast food <laughs> celebrity franchise of the time called Mini Pearl's Fried Chicken. And Mini Pearl's fried chicken was so successful that everybody else started cashing in. And the first person to cash in on this craze <clears throat> was Mahalia Jackson.
1: Mahalia Jackson, the gospel ah. singer.
3: It was called Mahalia Jackson's Glora Fried Chicken. True, ah! true, story, true name.
2: <laughs> you see the list I sent you of
3: wow. these today? I yes. sent them to
2: Dara.
1: Now yeah, there I, was
3: many. Per-
2: m- sorry, go ahead. What I remember is Jack Klugman had that Jack's popcorn for a little while.
1: Yeah, he's talking about actual locations. Yeah, like but real actual- places. Yeah.
3: Well, the list I have here, we have <clears throat> Mini Pearls Fried Chicken, Mahalia Jackson's <laughs> Glora Fried Chicken, Eddie Arnold's Fried Chicken. These were all chains.
1: Chill Will's Will. had a chicken had a chicken joint.
3: Chill Will's Chuck Wagon Barbecue. <laughs> Chill <Ritter's> Will's
1: <laughs> had his own restaurant. Killed.
3: <laughs> Te- <laughs> Tex Ritter's Chuck Wagon Restaurant. Eddie Arnold's Fried Chicken. Mickey Rooney's Star Barbecue. Love Hank that. Hank William Hank William Junior's Barbecue Pit. Um, Johnny Carson had a restaurant chain called Here's Johnny's, and it closed down in a scandal because um, the police. Got all these reports that people were eating at Here's Johnny's and getting sick, and they learned that the coffee pot had been spiked with uh, methamphetamines. Holy! Shut down, God! Johnny Carson's restaurant. Here's Johnny. Um, There was the Petticoat Junction theme park in Panama City.
2: Wait, wait, wait! How did how did the drugs get into the coffee pot?
3: (laughs) It apparently was some employee was doing something. I don't know. Um, But they tested the coffee after all these people got ill, and it tested positive uh, for narcotics.
2: Oh, geez. What was Mickey Rooney's Weenie World? That I love. (laughs) That one, that's my all-time favorite.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Mickey Rooney's Weenie World and Mickey Rooney's um, Star Barbecue and Mickey Rooney's Lime Soda. They all came out around the same time. <laughs> he was on. doing all these stupid harebrained schemes <laughs> in almost every situation, including most of these celebrities. In almost every situation, it was some sort of shell game where they were met, with, met some sort of shady businessman who made off with all the money, and then they had to file for bankruptcy. Uh, Conway Twitty's Twitty Burgers. Conway Twitty's restaurant. Twitty Burgers. God
1: Tennessee Um, Ernie Ford's Steak and Biscuits.
3: Yes, yes. Mickey Mantle's Country Cookin'. Roger Miller's King of the Road Motor Inn. Roger
1: Miller had a motor inn called King of the Road Motor Inn. These are are great. What was going on in the Petticoat Junction theme park?
3: Petticoat (laughs) Junction theme park was in Panama City, Florida. It was the only one. Um, It was one of these things, sort of like the Bedrock City Flintstone theme parks, where they thought people would make a pilgrimage to these areas that were way out of the way if they built this stupid theme park based on a popular entity. But mostly they just kind of rusted away. Um, and there's still elements of these places. You can still sort of see the Petticoat Junction train that they built for it somewhere. But none of these places really succeeded. They kind of had a very low threshold of success. There was the laugh restaurant. Yeah, I was just going to ask
1: you about the laugh restaurant. Where was that? They
3: sold... They sold Bippy Burgers. I think. of <laughs> Oh,
1: jeez, Gilbert. How did you never do this in
2: your career? How- <laughs> never wow. hope,
3: open yes, up. Yes, like- I know. <laughs> Gilbert's Fried Chicken.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh my
1: God. There was also
3: there was also a Steve Allen Honda. He, yeah, I Steve saw Allen the picture
1: of a- that that you sent me.
3: Steve he Allen Honda. Honda. Oh, <laughs> that doesn't man. make any sense. He ran a Honda dealership on Santa Monica Boulevard. Walter Brennan, aforementioned, had the Indian Lodge Motel in Joseph, Oregon. I think it's I'm, still there. I'm
1: sure he loved Native Americans. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure I'm he sure. embraced ah, them. Ah,
3: ah, there was Johnny Weissmuller, Johnny Weissmuller's Natural Foods. There was also a place in Florida called Tarzan Land that Johnny Weissmuller was the spokesman for until it found out they didn't have the copyright or the legal basis to anything Tarzan. They changed the name to uh, Johnny Weissmuller's Tropical Wonderland. That's
1: my favorite one on the list. Johnny Weissmuller's Tropical Wonderland. Hey, kids. <laughs>
3: <And> <laughs> Pack your suitcases. Ken, oh. <laughs> and then Ken, Ken Berry, who just What was the away. Ken, Ken Berry gift <laughs> shop?
1: <laughs> it's, like, it's like a dream. This is like a fever dream I'm having.
3: Yeah, it was in Encino. It was called It's the Berries. It was he it's the wives. berries <laughs> this
1: is this yeah. is this is making me so happy
3: yeah it was a kenberry gift shop in encino there was the arthur treacher service system does and that, pre- that arthur-
1: predates arthur treacher's fish and chips i would yes, assume which was big here in yes, the states
2: the
3: service treacher-
2: center it's a service system yeah. service system
3: <laughs> yeah when he was the sidekick on the merv griffin show he opened this business because in the 30s he was famous for playing. <laughs> in the 30s he was famous for playing butlers like yeah, uh, sure. Jeeves and Ask Jeeves. Um, he created this butler maid staffing service. If you needed a butler maid, you'd phone the Arthur Treacher uh, uh, service system and say, "I need a butler," and they would supply a butler for you. And Arthur Treacher appeared in all the ads. Again, it didn't last very long. Um, wow, this is Andy- great. Andy Griffith's Good, Eaton, Good which Eaten Good a fast food. <laughs> and place. We,
1: we've, we've said, Gilbert, how did you never open like Gilbert Gilbert Gottfried's brisket world? Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is <laughs> unbelievable. No. no one ever came to you. <laughs> no shading guy is, with white hair and a briefcase. Hey Gottfried. The funny
3: thing is, most of these um restaurants were in terrible neighborhoods, you know, like Jack in the Box. Often if you hang out in a Jack in the Box uh parking sure. lot, there's sketchy shit going on. Same with these places. Everything I looked up on Minnie Pearl's Fried Chicken were about uh, armed robberies, about, you know, God. <laughs> being held up, all these places. And without exception, most of these people, these celebrities, got ripped off. They got screwed out of their investment in some way or another.
0: It's Sunday at Minnie Pearl's. Brands. Family and food aplenty. What, fried a chicken, my friend? And, of course, plenty of many Pearl's chicken. Plump, tasty, golden brown chicken fried the old-fashioned way. <laughs> Not too greasy and with just the right touch of herbs and spices. Now, maybe you won't get the chance to enjoy dinner with Minnie Pearl, but you can enjoy dinner with many Pearl's chicken anytime you want. Most folks say many Pearl's chicken is the best going, but you'll never know till you try it.
1: Well, we saved the best one for last, and that's Cesar Romero's Cappuccino Ristorante.
2: Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, this I got, this I want to devote a whole show to this one.
3: <laughs> Cesar Romero's Cappuccino Ristorante, which was this sort of, um, Hollywood attempt at an Italian restaurant. Back then, the word cappuccino was unknown. It was considered like a real high-end thing. But I think that place only lasted um, 10 months, and they used his drawing, a drawing of uh, Cesar Romero as the logo, the same way they used a drawing of Alan Hale Jr. as the logo. I don't know why they didn't <laughs> use a come photo. Full circle. It artist's rendering of these, show, of these restaurants, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm going to put this out to our listeners because I know they're going to get jazzed by this. Post on the Listener Society uh, your, your favorite uh, celebrity theme restaurants or, oh, ce- okay. or celebrity uh, franchises because there's got to be even I, more than this.
3: Well, I should mention Minnie Pearl was so successful with Minnie Pearl's fried chicken that she tried two other uh, franchises. One was called, it sounds like a euphemism, but the other one was called Minnie Pearl's roast beef. <laughs> which was a restaurant chain.
1: Well, the kingfish should have... <laughs> <laughs> the kingfish could have gotten there, gone there and gotten a new yeah, roast that's beef. Right. Wouldn't have shot it his go wife. On,
3: if, you, if you go on eBay, you can buy patches that you can sew onto your jacket of the logo that says Mini Pearl's Roast Beef and wear it proudly on your lapel. I mean, we know and the modern she, ones. Go ahead. And then she also opened uh, Mini Pearl's Daycare Centers, a series of child care centers mini pearl daycare centers oh geez
1: oh there's too much did all the daycare workers have a have a hat with a price
3: tag on it (laughs) (laughs) i believe so the children were forced to wear those
1: i think we also know what went on at the chuck berry park country club
3: yes yeah a lot of (laughs) underage sex going on there that was a catskills style resort Named after Chuck Berry, endorsed by Chuck Berry, with his image on all the advertising. Chuck Berry's Park Country Club Resort. But wasn't app. he hiding
1: cameras in the ladies' rooms? You remember this story, yes? Gilford? Yes. At, at restaurants that yeah. he owned.
3: Right, right. Well, it was like Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn had a specially designed house with peepholes, secret two-way mirrors, <laughs> and secret passageways, so he could spy on all of his guests having sex whenever he would hold a big party. In fact, that that house went up for sale. Like five years ago, it's at the top of Mulholland Drive and it's still full of all the secret passageways and peepholes because um, Errol Flynn liked to spy on people and uh, jerk off.
2: (laughs) There you go, (laughs) Gil. This is all too much. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Cliff, we could do six hours or six
1: shows. You make us so happy. Uh, just just uh, which one? Which one do you want, Gil? Uh, the Rat Pack movie that was protested by neo Nazis, or how Maury Amsterdam got in trouble with mental health advocates?
2: Holy fuck! <laughs> I'm I like I like anything with Nazis. Okay, so. what
1: about you? Want to tell that one before we get out of here, Cliff?
3: So the American Nazi Party had this crazy um, resurgence in the '60s, where they're there in the media a lot, mostly because of um. George Lincoln Rockwell. He was very no, well-known because sure. Mike Wallace would uh, interview right, him. Sure, And George Lincoln Rockwell, who was the head of the American Nazi Party in the 60s, organized a lot of protests against movies. They protested the movie Exodus, so there were all these people with Nazi armbands marching in front of theaters that were showing Exodus. But when they showed the movie, um, came out with the movie Sargent's 3, 3, starring yeah. the Rat Pack, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Joey Bishop, Sammy Davis Jr., the American Nazi party protested that because of the interracial familiarity of Sammy Davis. And so that went on in Chicago for um, a few weeks where if you went and bought a ticket to go see Sergeants three, there would be Nazis marching around out front. And it should be noted that George Lincoln Rockwell's father was a guy named Doc Rockwell. And he was a comedian in Vaudeville, very famous comedian, contemporary of Groucho Marx, contemporary of Frank Fay. Doc Rockwell was not a racist, but his son became the leader of the American Nazi Party, George Lincoln Rockwell, and he disowned his son um, at that point. But yeah, they staged an organized protest against Sergeants 3.
2: There you things. go, Gil. Jesus. Wow. All, all right, now I have to hear the Maury Amsterdam. <laughs> okay, and then we'll get out of here.
3: Well, I learned that Maury Amsterdam was involved in a lot of lawsuits. Uh, um lawsuits litigious. Yeah. Well, he always claimed that he had written that song for the Andrews Sisters, "Rum and Coca Cola." Right? Sure, you, you probably heard that that he had sure, written sure. that song, and his name does appear on. He the He did credits write of songs. He
1: wrote the Dick Van Dyke theme.
3: Did he write the theme, or did he write the lyrics that nobody used?
1: Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's okay. interesting. Yes, the theme may I, have been written by a musician. I stand corrected. I'm pretty corrected.
3: sure because because he did that Earl with Hagen Rum and Coca Cola. He went to a Trinidad on some sort of war tour in the forties. And he heard rum and Coca-Cola being played by a local um, Calypso musician. And he basically stole it. He stole rum and Coca-Cola added a few new lines. And then rum and Coca-Cola became a huge hit in the States and all over the world. And people, and, and it got back to this Calypso musician. He said, that's my song. And so he sued Maury Amsterdam and won, but Maury Amsterdam's legal defense, when he was defending himself and saying that they should throw this out of court, this plagiarism suit He said that the plagiarism suit doesn't bear any water because the lyrics to rum and Coca-Cola are lewd, lascivious, and obscene. Therefore, your um, copyright is not honored in the United States. It was a weird defense, and he lost the case. Then a few years later, uh, Maury Amsterdam and Pat Carroll sued Hanna-Barbera because they had done an audition for the Jetsons and thought that they had been promised the voices of George and Jane Jetson. They lost uh, that suit. And then in the late 70s, what you're referring to, Maury Amsterdam was cast in this pilot for a sitcom that took place in a psychiatric ward. It was supposed to be a takeoff on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but a comedy. (laughs) Hilarious. And Maury Amsterdam was playing this sort of spastic Jerry Lewis type thing. And it was the late 70s, so this was already considered kind of, you don't do that anymore. And so all these sort of... Public health and mental health advocates came after him and ABC for running the pilot. They thought it was going to go to series, or at least Maury Amsterdam did, and he had turned down the job playing Lou Grant's boss on Lou Grant when they were preparing Lou Grant to do this other series where he played a spastic in a mental ward. And so he was really pissed off oh, really Unbelievable. <laughs> but, but, of course, that show never <coughs> got made. Now,
1: Cliff, we could go on and on and on. I want to recommend the book again. All this great stuff is to be found is in the comedian's uh, Cliff's wonderful Bible of comedy called Essential by John Hodgman and uh, Mel there's a Mel Brooks blurb on the back. It is a it is a wonderful read. You could this kind of book you can read three or four times, yeah. and then come and come back to it and find, boy, what a what a an undertaking. And we're just so happy you wrote it, and you're so happy you came here, and you came back to us, and you know so much about these restaurants. Will you help Gilbert develop Gilbert yeah. Gottfried's Pastrami <laughs> Palace?
3: <laughs> i'm sure we can slap some uh, labels on the unsold bottles of mickey rooney's lime soda if you want to <laughs> yeah.
1: can I'll you even find money? that is that, is that that uh, is that acquirable
3: well mickey rooney you can find some of these weird things on ebay from time to time um the andy griffith the good eaten yeah um, paper hats that the uh people that work their war sometimes show up on ebay it's gonna be uh, my like new say, collection Mini Pearls Fried Chicken Patches. There's a lot of matches. You can find Match books covers from Alan Hill Jr.'s Lobster Barrel. I don't know uh, what your next book
1: is about, but I hope it's about fun celebrity scandals. And and we only got to half of them.
3: It is, and I've been researching Will Rogers, though, quite a bit for my new book. I can't say what the new book's about yet, but I have been researching Will Rogers because I left him out of the previous book because I always thought he was sort of boring. You know, you hear a lot about Will Rogers, but it doesn't sound funny to me you know they say you never met a man he didn't like you never met a man he didn't like and you're like what the fuck does that even mean it's not a joke it's not a punchline. but i looked into it i learned what it means it's it's out, taken out of context he had written a list of jokes in his humor column of fake epitaphs things he wanted on his tombstone and the last one was that maudlin sentence i never met a man i didn't like it was sort of like you know don rickle's insulted everybody for an hour and at the end he would do that maudlin apology and say we're all the same we're all here for a bit of laughter it would be like this corny wind down will rogers did that He, he would do this this thing of the mock epitaphs and then he would wind down with this corny maudlin thing and say actually i want my tombstone to say i've traveled the world and i never met a man i didn't like i never met a man i didn't like and after that he said I, I wish I could die right now so somebody could start carving the tombstone, which was a weird thing to say.
1: Things taken um, out of I, context. Geez. How about that? Gilbert, all in, I can say is <clears throat> take heart because you would have been on Hitler's list.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> had you existed, had you broken through in the 40s. Don't you think so, Cliff? Don't you think he'd have made it?
3: He may have. He may have.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Any quick plugs before we get you out of here?
3: No, not really. Not really. But if people want to see some images from those restaurants and stuff on oldshowbiz.tumblr.com is a sort of page that I use to dump all my research materials. As I'm researching and discovering things, I just post it for other people to see. And it's all tagged, so you could click on the word... Um, Caesar Romero, and it'll take you to pages and pages of Caesar Romero-related and stuff. And of course, Pitch the Rundle. classic
1: showbiz site that has your still has your great interviews on there.
3: Yes, that's all out there. So yeah, no no real plugs. You know, you asked me what I've been up to, and I haven't been up to anything other than watching old movies and discovering these stories. I'm, I'm like you guys. I'm obsessed <laughs> with this <laughs> yes, shit. We, you know
1: why we love talking to you. So come yeah, back and we'll I, do it. We'll do it again.
3: Sounds great. Sounds great. We'll get to to the rest night.
1: of these?
2: Well, this this is one of those shows I feel like I have to lie down.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Gilbert's mouth has been agape yes. for the last forty five minutes. <laughs> yeah,
2: I feel like I I I desperately need a shower. Come on, you
1: got Goober pretending he had a vagina. It's unbelievable.
2: <laughs> Stu Gilbert
1: attacking
2: got, a guy with an axe.
3: What, what what's on that? We won't go into we won't go into the stories, but what's on that list that we didn't get to? That list that I gave you of uh, of all the scandals, is the things that
1: oh god, we'll, do, we'll do it another
3: time. Just yeah. name one. I just want to hear the, some of the list there. I don't have it in front of me.
1: Oh yeah, oh it's long. I printed out three pages. Oh Jesus Christ!
2: Yeah, we'll get to we'll 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 do them next time for sure. Do you know? I remember one time working with Dom DeLuise, where he said he was doing a show for Jerry Lewis, and Jerry Lewis would come over to him. With a stick and balls tucked between his legs, really, really? Gil? <laughs> yes, yes. so trend.
1: <laughs> I'm expecting that from you by the end of the evening, Gil. Yes. <laughs> I know you're not derivative.
2: And and Dom DeLuise said in 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 the middle of you know a million dollars show and and everything's going wrong. I, why would he be doing this?
1: <laughs> Add that one to the list, Cliff. Oh man. Uh, everybody, get get your hands on the comedians. Go to Cliff's uh, great websites, and uh, we will see you again, buddy. Thank you for doing this. Okay, us.
2: this is Cliff Noozle Nozzle. <laughs> Cliff Noozle Nozzle? Noozle. He was a famous Nazi. <laughs> Thanks,
3: buddy. Thanks, guys. We'll talk soon. All right.
0: You can have my coffee. You can have my tea. Yes, you let my be on yellow me. I'm just as jealous. I'm jealous, jealous heart is me I'm just as jealous as I can be Now I've got so go, got the best in town What I need a good man to turn the for down I'm jealous, jealous heart is me without changing gears. I'm jealous. Jealous already.
2: Godfrey's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Godfrey and Frank Padre, with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach.
0: Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn.